1: Fit for a queen.
0: Well, queens, we are so excited to have Isabel Fox and Duke today on the show. Um, Isabel Fox and Duke is the creator of Stop Fighting Food, a free video training program for women who want to stop feeling crazy around food. After years of trying to overcome emotional eating, binge eating, and chronic weight cycling through traditional (laughs) and alternative approaches, Isabel discovered some radical new ways to get women over their food issues once and for all. Not just by shifting the mindsets of individuals, but by challenging the dominant diet culture as a whole. A fixture and thought leader in the greater body positive movement, Isabel has been. Ooh, I just lost your bio. <laughs> has been featured on numerous shows, including um, getting lots of recognition from Ricky Lake. She has wrote a free guide called How to Eat Not How to Not Eat Cake, and it can be found on www.IsabelFoxandDuke, which, of course, we will put in our show notes. And you can watch her free series at www.stopfightingfood.com. Welcome, Isabel. Yeah.
1: Thanks for coming on, Isabel.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's do it. <laughs> well,
1: yeah. First, tell us how your journey led you to be the blogger, podcaster, and coach that you are today.
2: Well, so I, um, you know, I I think that I had an experience growing up that is actually most women, certainly in our culture and increasingly more people in our culture um, can relate to. From a very, very young age. I, I started dieting when I was super young. And so, uh, you know, from a, from the time I was about three years old, that was when I was put on my first diet, which I know is oh, insane, mm-hmm. Liter- literally by a pediatrician. A pediatrician oh. put me on my first diet at three years old, which is yeah. crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, like from so basically from the time I was pre-memory, right? Like I, you know, was believed and was told very clearly, like, your body's not okay, You need to try to become thinner. And the way to do that is to control what you eat, right? And so that messaging was just sort of like the background of my entire life from a very young age. I I, Sometimes I think about my relationship with food like food, like diet, how am I going to lose weight? What to eat? What not to eat? You know, um, oh my gosh, I ate too much, right? All of that sort of like noise around food, all of that stuff, like that constant like thought chatter in my brain around food. I, I think of it, it was like kind of like the ticker tape behind okay. of my life. Like it was the ticker tape, like going on behind whatever was like at the forefront of my brain. So it was like, I'd be like going to school or, you know, hanging out with friends or doing family stuff. But like in the background at all times was this don't eat that do eat this what's the next way you're gonna lose five pounds what's the next way you're gonna lose 30 pounds you know like it was just like constantly you know good food bad food you know like trying to resist food you know became like a big part of it like sitting on my hands trying not to eat the cheese plate at you know, the dinner party or whatever. Right. And so this, it was just the constant, that constant background noise of just dieting. And then obviously, you know, also failing at dieting. So I was never very good at dieting. I now realize that most people are not very good at dieting, right? Like I would, you know, stick to my thing for, you know, however long it was days, weeks, whatever. And then I would, you know, like just sort of dramatically fall off the wagon and when I would fall off the wagon, you know, it would be like rummaging through the cabinets, like sticking my finger into like strawberry jam jars and like eating an entire jar you know, of strawberry jam with my finger, like in the front of the refrigerator, mm-hmm. like those kinds of things, you know? And so I, um, this was my life for a really, really long time. I, I ended up at some point in treatment for binge eating disorder, um, and, th- th- Even after going into treatment, I struggled for many, many years, largely because this problem is so misunderstood by our culture. There's a lot of um, social and political reasons why it's very hard to come by reasonable treatment for um, this kind of issue. Um, And so, yeah, like for many years, I, I was like, there's something not okay with my, you know, there's something, something's not working here in my relationship with food, right. I sort of began to identify as a person who had some sort of like, you know, kind of disordered relationship with food and I was looking for help and I couldn't find it anywhere. And, um, you know, again, I tried a million things. I think my parents spent, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on treatment for me. Um, and uh, you know, it was, it really wasn't until, you know, I learned, um, some of the, some things that are now becoming more commonplace, Um, you know, sort of the non-diet approach, understanding that binges are caused by dieting, you know, the answer to binges is not trying to buckle down and control even harder, those kinds of things, which I'm sure we'll get into in this conversation, um, that I, you know, kind of finally was able to really kind of break free in quotes from this issue. And and it obviously ended up looking entirely different. What freedom looks like today looks entirely different than what I ever thought it would look like. Because I grew up thinking that freedom looks like controlling your food to a T and being able to have perfect willpower and like have the perfect body. <laughs> um, and now it's like, oh, I realized that like the constant pursuit of those things was where all of my trouble began. And, you know, my sanity really rests in, in things like, um, accepting my body for what it is today and loving myself unconditionally for who I am today. And all of these things that I think we're going to talk about, uh, later in this conversation. So mm. yeah, that's why I do what I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, and one of the reasons that you're one of my favorite bloggers is because you you just keep it real. So like all my clients, they probably had so many quotes that I pulled from your blog. And I remember one of my favorites is, and I use this a lot with my athletes, and I hope I do it justice, is to say that food should just be fuel is to say that sex should only be for the purpose of reproduction. Yeah. (laughs) I I love that one. Where they're like, oh, I have to eat this because, you know, I'm a runner and I've got, well, no, you know, you can enjoy your food and have that balance too but that brings mm-hmm. me to one of my questions is these lines have gotten blurred between treating and feeling ourselves but then also having to fit the societal idea of like you said that pursuit of having to diet and look a certain way where can we kind of get back on track
2: Well, for starters, you know, on a very basic level, we really need to start separating health, right? So meaning like the just like generally like caring for our bodies and and taking care, you know, physically taking care of the bodies we have, we need to start separating those things from weight, right? Mm -hmm. So fat, especially in the past let's call it 20 years maybe maybe a little longer like really starting in the early 90s maybe a tiny bit before that but in the early 90s when we really 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 see this uptick of you know the marketing of weight loss products and the marketing of diet products um, being more geared towards health, right? Like we want to make you healthy versus, you know, what it was for a really long time, which was just vanity, like, Mm -hmm. look good, look good, look good. Right. And I think at some point the, um, you know, it's sort of, it has increasingly become this way, but it's sort of kind of become out of vogue to sell weight loss exclusively for vanity, right? Like now we need to have like a more a, a moralistic, um, you know, reason to give people to try to diet and control their size. And and the reason that, you know, our culture has really like clung to, right, is this concept of health, right? And, and the, this, just to be clear, it comes from the fact that there is a correlation between higher weights and certain chronic illnesses. We actually don't have any really strong evidence that chronic illnesses are, you know, necessarily caused by fat on the body, right? It's, we just have this correlation, right? So mm. if you're a larger bodied person, the probability that you're dealing with a specific kind of chronic illness goes up. Um, but again, there are lots of people at all different sizes who are super duper healthy and lots of people at thinner sizes who have, you know, quote unquote weight related chronic illnesses. And so it really begs the question, you know, if anyone's taken any kind of like intro to statistics class, you know, does correlation mean causation? Right. And so, you know, the more you look into this question, the more you start to kind of call out the bullshit when people, you know, kind of just, just, just blindly assume that, like, you can dictate a person's health by the size of their body, right? And and this sort of, you know, um, this sort of correlation became has sort of become. Um, society has sort of decided, right? Oh, we're not going to consider the fact that correlation doesn't equal causation. And maybe, you know, it's not that fat causes diabetes. Maybe, you know, there's something else that causes diabetes that also just happens to correlate with weight. So for instance, like I have, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Linda Bacon, but she's Mm -hmm. the author of Health at Every Size. She has this really, really great parallel that she draws when talking about this correlation versus causation issue. She says, you know, blaming um, poor health on fatness is kind of like blaming lung cancer on having yellow teeth, Uh, right? Like if you have yellow (laughs) teeth, you're more likely to have lung cancer. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that having yellow teeth actually causes lung cancer? (laughs) No, no probably there's like a third party factor going on called smoking Mm -hmm. that's contributing to both of these things. And in the case of weight and health, you kind of have a similar thing. Like there are a lot of things that may contribute to weight gain over time that also contribute to chronic health issues um, potentially. And some of those things, I mean, it could be, there's again, a variety of things. It's not just food, it's food, it's stress, it's stigma. I mean, it's all sorts of things that could fall into that sort of like third party category, like the smoking category, or the, you know, the thing that might be causing both. Um, but, you know, again, the factor that's not, we don't look at that science in our culture, right? Like in our culture, we don't actually, we've just kind of, we've skipped that whole step and just decided, you know, well, if you just make people thinner by any means necessary, They'll be healthier, yeah, right? And we've right. really stepped into this like attitude that health and weight are the same thing. That you can look at a person, and by view by just taking a look at their uh, their size, you can know whether or not they're healthy without knowing anything about their actual health behaviors or about their actual health vitals, without knowing their blood pressure, without knowing their you know blood sugar measurement, you know any of that. You can just decide, oh, that person's unhealthy because they're fat, and that is. So super super problematic cuz basically what's happened is culturally we've given people the ability to turn what used to be vanity the the uh, aggressive pursuit of weight, uh, of of weight loss uh, weight loss and by the way it wasn't really just vanity i mean that's a, a kind of an unfair assumption to even make that because truly like you know it, if you're like specifically, I'll speak for women, but I think this is increasingly, you know, the case for men as well. And people of all genders, right? Like in the eighties, right? Like, or, you know, for, for now several decades, you're a hundred percent being judged by your size all the time in our culture. And so, you know, vanity is a really hard work. You know, it's a really, it's a, it's, it's not really the correct word for this, um, because that sort of puts the onus on the individual as being the problem when really, you know, a society which is constantly oppressing and and creating prejudice and creating opportunities and disadvantages for people on the basis of size is really the issue. But I'm kind of digressing. The point is this so used you keep to be going. yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> You're on a roll.
2: You do your thing. <laughs> I am I am. I, you know, you get you caught me. This is a big topic, you know. I uh-huh. can go a million different ways with it, but um, you know the idea you know what used to be vanity has now become this health imperative and and i think mm-hmm. that that's really helped that's changed the dialogue around this and it's made it such that you know it's like super fashionable to be like a crazy dieter right um in a way where in the past people may have just been considered that it may have been considered more of a vanity issue although again it wasn't really a vanity issue it was a prejudice issue mm-hmm. all along mm-hmm. but this was this is how the narrative has changed over time so Right now we have a situation in which, you know, dieting, which used to just be like, oh, that chick's just trying to look good, you know, has become this like moralistic health imperative. And that's really, 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 really damaged people. It's Mm -hmm. not evidence-based. You know, we have a situation where people are getting shitty treatment when they go to the doctors Mm -hmm. because they're being told to lose weight to manage these chronic health conditions when in reality, you know, in a lot of instances, A, like, A, even if you were able to lose a bunch of weight, like, are you doing that healthfully? Probably not, Mm -hmm. like in most cases not. And the reason I know that is because most people aren't even able to do it, right? Like Mm -hmm. 95% of people who try to lose weight are gonna gain the weight back plus some, right? Well, they're gonna gain the weight back for sure. And then maybe about a third of the people who try will give and gain back more, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, this is not evidence-based medicine. Like, you know, now I'm fully on my rant, but- (laughs) you know, like prescribing dieting as a health measure, like is not evidence-based care. It's not based in any kind of science. It's based on this like assumption delusion that like you should be able to control your weight. And that weight is, you know, an accurate measurement and predictor of health, which it is also not. So it's like, we have like our entire medical system, our entire, like, you know, way that we culturally think about health based on two just bold-faced just assumptions, right, that are not based in fact or science at all, which is one, you know, if you lose a bunch of weight, you'll be healthier, not necessarily true, far from it. And number two, that you can and should be able to lose weight. And if you're not able to permanently keep weight off, there's something wrong with you rather than like looking at the science and like, okay, well, 95% of the population can't permanently lose quote unquote, significant amounts of weight, So does that really mean that 95% of our population is just like lazy and like, you know, has food problems and, you know, and the narrative also around why people can't keep weight off is constantly changing as well. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it used to be, and it still is to some extent, like lazy, undisciplined, all of that, that's still around. But now there's really more, there's more nuanced, more interesting rationalizations for why diets don't work that always put the onus on the individual. Things like, (laughs) Even the emotional eating narrative, right? Like this food for fuel narrative, right? This idea that like, oh, you know, I can't lose weight because I eat my feelings, right? Or because, you know, I, you know, that, that's the reason I can't stick to my diet is because I'm an emotional eater. That narrative can be used for a lot of harm as well, right? Like, I'm sorry, but like emotional eating is not the reason you can't stick to, you know, an 1800 calorie a day diet or whatever, (laughs) you know? So Anyway, that is, um, there's a lot going on in that question, but you know, to, 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 I think get to the heart of it, you know, we really need to be taking a hard look at where we rationalize what is effectively for many people, disordered eating behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, for the sake of, and and call it health, um, I would also go so far to say is that there's a lot of people out there and I was one of them. So maybe I'll just speak, to, speak for myself when I was really struggling, I would call it health when I actually knew damn well that I just wanted to look thin, yeah. but in public I would call it health, right? right? Like in public, I would be like, you know, Oh yeah, no, I'm a vegan this week or I'm this this week or I'm not this week. And Oh, it's for ethical reasons. And in fact, I knew damn well it wasn't actually in my case. Right. And of course there are, you know, very legitimate, real ethical vegans out there. So I'm certainly not making any kind of point about that. But in my case, as a disordered eater, who was just trying to rationalize restriction in public, I often would use the health card as a way to rationalize doing what was actually something very, both mentally and physically unhealthy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we see that a lot too. A lot of people, you know, I I remember I wrote a blog post, this was years ago. um, I wrote a blog post called Stop Saying Healthy When You Mean Skinny. Mm -hmm. you know and and because yeah because it's you know people use that language all the time to rationalize dieting like if people actually had to say what they really mean and I force my clients to do this like if they start using like vague bullshit language like that I'll be like (laughs) no 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 say what you mean because we can't do this work unless you're a hundred percent honest with me and yourself Mm -hmm. so don't you know if you mean thin when you say healthy just say thin just say it right? Because then we can have an honest conversation about what's really happening in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) And
0: that, you know, that makes so much sense, especially when they go into a typical medical model and Mm -hmm. maybe they truly are struggling with something health and then even the physician turns it right back to their weight and then that gets overlooked. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. their blood pressure is elevated because they're chronically stressed and pulling their hair out and need to be able to learn how to juggle five kids and a job and, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, of course, let's just Well, if I lose
2: weight, then I'll be able to do all that better, too. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, I mean, I always come back to whenever I'm like getting, you know, hot and bothered about this, I always come back to, I'm like, well, you know what? Like, even if you could, even if your health did wildly improve if you lost 50 pounds, again, like, is, do you have an evidence based, safe, like, proven safe way of getting there? Right. And the answer is no. No, like mm-hmm. anytime you go on a diet, you're taking a huge gamble. It's a huge gamble. It's like I, sometimes I, I correlate or I, um, I parallel it to like playing the lottery, right? Again, like 95% chance of loss. 5% chance that you'll be able to keep weight off just for like three years. Like yeah. every year you keep it off, the numbers go, it's like, it's like ducks falling. It's like every, you know, if it's like how many people are able to sustain a five year period of significant weight loss or 10 year, that 5% literally dwindles. It literally right. goes down over mm-hmm. time. Um, but I'm like, you know, and, and dieting has serious side effects. Like, would you take a medication that a 90 had a 95%, you know, failure rate, 95% chance is just not going to work at all you know, three percent, you know, 30 percent chance that you're going to actually gain more weight. So the problem in quotes that you're trying to fix is actually going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a long list of side effects, mm-hmm. right? Like, like you know, horrible prognosis, a long list of side effects. Would you take that medicine? Mm-hmm. I highly doubt it. And as a doctor, would you prescribe that medicine? I highly doubt it. But with right. weight, it's like we just turn a blind eye because culturally we just have all these assumptions about weight you know, we are committed to the idea that our weight is in our exclusive control of willpower. We're committed to the idea that we're robots, not animals, and that we should be able to control basic biological instincts like eating.
1: Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, yeah. <laughs> you do such a great job of really challenging one to put any judgment on our bodies, with, whether that negative or positive. Why do you think this is so important?
2: I mean, again, I just think when I think that the majority of disordered eating, you know, of course it can be triggered by like bad doctors telling you to go on diets to save your life. For sure that that, that happens. But I think by and large in our culture, the vast majority of eating of sort of disordered eating that we see and diet binge cycling and the feeling crazy around food and all the shit that most people and definitely most women are dealing with on some sort of spectrum basis. Um, is due to, you know, just bias and prejudice around wheat, right? and and status seeking or, you know, wanting to avoid, uh, wanting to avoid negative prejudice and bias or wanting to acquire positive status, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. You know, depending on the situation, right. But in either situation, it's basically, it's a status issue, right? Like I don't want to be lesser status by gaining weight or being larger. I want to be more great, have higher status by being as thin as possible and being as close to the beauty ideal, the current beauty ideal as possible. Um, And so, you know, I, I don't even necessarily think it's about how we judge ourselves. I think it's just like this problem of prejudice of weight based prejudice, whether it be towards ourselves or towards other people is driving this issue by and large. Right. Um, for the vast majority of people. Now, not all people, I think that there are absolutely situations in which disordered eating can come about for, you know, reasons that have nothing to do with prejudice necessarily. But the vast majority of disordered eating is in our culture is triggered by some sort of event where somebody had the thought, people would like me more if I lost weight. Mm-hmm. I'd be more beautiful if I lost weight. Um, People don't like me because I'm fat, so I must try to lose weight, right, and, and therefore must try to restrict my food and control my basic biological instincts of, of eating. Um, and so, and once you get into that rabbit hole, it's really hard to get yourself out of, right? I mean, it's a cycle, right? Diet binge cycle for most people. The cycle is try to lose weight, fail miserably and have like a binge eating episode potentially, or even just like a, you know, a rebound where you feel like shit about yourself on the way back up. It's like, you were feeling so good. You were getting so high on the way back down thinking, Oh yeah, man, I look so good like, I'm so hot, everyone's gonna love me. And then bam, right, you lose it, you rebound, you gain the weight back, and you feel awful about yourself, right. And so, you know, this is a very, of course, when we feel awful about ourselves, we just want the high of feeling good again. So we try to diet again. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this is how the cycle continues. But you can see how this cycle, this diet binge cycle, or this even just weight cycling, right, like not everyone is a identifies as a binge eater necessarily, but most people who have lost weight on a diet have also had the experience of rebounding in some way, shape or form, even if it was just like, oh, I'm, I'm over it, I'm giving up. And then I just, you know, s- slowly gain the weight back, right? People, most people have this experience of cycling, and they don't know how to get out. Because when you, you know, when you get up, when you're when you're rebounding, you feel like shit about yourself, you think the answer is to go back to the high of trying to lose it. Um, but you can see, sorry, getting back to my original point, you can see <laughs> how this is all fueled by prejudice, right? You can yeah. see how this is all fueled by the high that comes, the high that comes from weight loss, by and large is the high of status seeking, mm-hmm. by and large is the high of everyone's going to love me, unicorns and rainbows are going to pop out of the sky, because I'm going to have a perfect body I'm and have all the all the thin privilege is, is is the term that gets thrown, you know, that gets used the most in my in my arena, Um, right? All that beauty privilege, all that, like, I'm going to, I'm going to get all the cookies, metaphorically, right? You're not going to get any cookies, non-metaphorically, no cookies in real life, just metaphoric cookies, right? I'm going to get all the bennies, all the benefits of being as close to the beauty ideal as I possibly can, And that is all based on status and prejudice and judgment. Right. And then, you know, obviously feel like shit about myself when I, when I'm on the way up. I think what's interesting is that, you know, I think a lot of people when they're doing this work and when I talk about non-judgment and talk about letting go of prejudice right, of weight based prejudice, a lot of them, they just want to feel good. They want to not feel like shit about themselves when they're on the way up. But they want to keep pursuing the positive status when they're on the way down, meaning they want to like pat themselves on the back when they're losing weight and they get all happy when they're losing weight. Everyone's going to love me. Unicorns and rainbows going (laughs) to pop out of the sky. Right. And then, but then, but then they feel like shit. And they oftentimes people come and read my work when they feel like shit. Right. And when they're feeling badly about themselves because they're on the rebound, they're, you know, they're binging, they're coming back up on the weight scale, whatever it is they feel badly. And that's when it's like, Oh, yeah, your message resonates so much. I don't want to hate myself anymore. But then for you know, if they get back on that diet trainer, if something happens where they perceive themselves to be losing weight, they're really attached to that positive judgment of like, Oh, my God, yeah, I look so hot. Not realizing that, like, they kind of like one is the flip side of the other, right? So it's like, thin privilege and negative weight bias, or like, you know, positive weight bias and negative weight bias kind of are two sides of the same coin. And so, you know, I think culturally, this is just a serious issue. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, it's not just about how I judge myself, it's about how I judge the world, like, am I participating in do I have weight bias period? Not, not only towards myself, but towards other people. And again, I'll, I'll just say, I'll, I think that this is really important. A lot of people think they only have weight bias towards themselves and they like to pretend like, Oh, she looks beautiful the way she is. I don't judge other people for their weight. That's bullshit, right? Like prejudice is prejudice, whether you're directing it towards yourself or you're directing it towards other people. Like for the most part, right? Like if you're having bias towards yourself, that means I can guarantee you that if you looked at two pictures of people and one was thinner and one was fatter, you know, you're going to have a positive judgment towards the thinner person versus the Mm -hmm. fatter person. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, like there's no way in hell that that's, you know, that you can hate yourself for being larger, but not also have that experience. Right. It kind of goes both ways. So, For me, like this is judge, right? Weight bias, fat prejudice, um, and size based prejudice is the fuel that really runs this whole diet binge cycling. And I would make the argument, even in the case of like restrictive eating disorders, a lot of times, you know, this weight bias really fuels, heavily fuels this, this problem called, you know, disordered dysfunctional eating, you know, diet binge cycling, whatever you wanna call it. Again, it's a spectrum, it can look a lot of different ways for different people. But um, and that, you know, this fuel is not just an individual problem of, oh, let me not hate myself. It's a greater social problem of like weight bias in general in our culture and just like rampant prejudice in our culture. You know, you have little girls who are three and four years old knowing that fat is bad and thin is good and fearing to gain weight like more than they in some instances, more than they fear losing a parent or getting hit by a car right? I mean, like, that's like a real statistic. Um, And so yeah, like, you know, for me, it's very clear, it became one of the things that became very clear to me when I really got into recovery and really started to understand, you know, what no one had told me when I was in treatment, you know, when I was getting all that shitty treatment that didn't work, it was largely because no one was having honest, real conversations about the very serious social problem and institutional problem in the US and around the world of weight discrimination. Mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that it's not just in my head that I'm scared to lose weight, if that's not just like me being like a pathological eating disordered person, I was taught to fear weight gain. And I was taught through watching fat people be, you know, prejudiced against right and discriminated against and thin people getting rewarded especially thin women but in, but thin people i mean it really is this is at this point a super all gendered thing although i do think that it's you know a highly sort of intersectional issue that affects women in a slightly different way than it affects men by virtue of the fact that women's you know entire value in a lot of instances is wrapped up in this beauty ideal right so yeah we need to be you know having really serious conversations about how how we judge people not just ourselves but all people on the basis of size And how our culture and even larger, you know, like political and government institutions and things like that, like for instance, our medical field, healthcare, right? You know, the war on obesity, dear God, right? We need to really think about how we, in like the really large scheme of things, perpetuate weight bias, right? And how that affects and is increasingly affecting people's relationships with food and their overall mental and physical well-being as a result.
0: Yeah, Exactly, cuz you're seeing that now in the in the schools where this war mm-hmm. on obesity so then they're addressing their weight and then tying the health outcome to it like mm. this generations you know not going to outlive their parents and starting that fear, you'll hear kids talk about like, mm-hmm. well, I got to lose weight because I don't want to have heart disease like Dad or Grandpa oh. did, and, you know, pass mm-hmm. away early. So already at seven, they're worried that their weight's going to cause them to die early, which is not <sighs> a fair thing for a child to to no. put together. But that's what mm-hmm. our society has yeah. done.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. The amount of fear and neurosis around food in children has increased quite a bit. They've not actually gotten thinner. Like the the war on obesity was a massive and is currently a massive failure Mm in the, in, in the government's attempt to just eradicate fat people, basically. (laughs) Um, But fundamentally, what it did do, what, you know, again, talking about, you know, this drug that has a 95% failure rate, but a long list of side effects with the war on obesity has done has made children very, you know, afraid of food and highly Mm -hmm. disordered in their thinking about food. Weight based bullying has been seriously on the rise. Now, weight based bullying has been around for a while, right? Like, as long as there's been weight prejudice, there's been weight based bullying. But in schools, this has now become like a much, 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 much bigger problem, because to a certain extent, it is sanctioned by the schools, right? I mean, you know, you hear these stories of kids being publicly weighed in gym class and their mm-hmm. weights being called out, you know, you hear all of these things and, and you know, people be- basically being, getting weight-based grades in school. That's something, you know, parent, you could go home with a pink slip. If you're, if you're the wrong size, you can go home with a pink slip to your parents saying, I failed, you know, thinness, I failed <laughs> thinness, you know, basically, uh. Um, you know, and so this is really, you know, this is, this is a huge, I mean, the war on obesity has largely been a disaster. Um, so many casualties with like no improved health outcomes whatsoever. Um, because you know, they were focusing on the wrong thing, you know, like, again, like, you know, we can talk about health, we can talk about managing chronic illnesses, but why don't we actually talk about actual behaviors? Like, instead of talking about yellow teeth, (laughs) <laughs> so instead of talking about yellow tea, let's talk about smoking. You know, mm-hmm. like instead of talking about weight, let's instead of talking about fat cells on the body right? Let's talk about, you know, you know, getting pleasurable movement and, you know, eating vegetables and getting people out of, in a lot of instances, the real issue is that people don't have access to health, right? People don't have, you know, this is a highly socioeconomically skewed situation, right? Like issue, you know, in many instances, you know, people are in, you know, positions where, you know, they're working three jobs, raising families and are 50 miles away from the nearest grocery store that sells a vegetable, you know? And so, Let's talk about these issues. Let's talk about, you know, the actual like institutional and social realities, certainly in the United States that are keeping people from being able to live well. Right. And feel good in their bodies rather than being like, oh, your back hurts, your knee hurts. You have a bloody nose. You're too fat instead of, um, you know, having hard and fast rules around what I should and shouldn't eat just kind of listening to my body, getting in touch with practicing mindfulness about what feels good to me, you know, that work really can only be effectively done in tandem with body image work, where if what feels good to you is to have like a, you know, super big high calorie meal, right? Like that's okay. Um, Because in a lot of instances, that will be the case. I mean, the other thing that I think is really hard with intuitive eating is that people are like, oh, when I listen to my body, I'm going to eat, you know it's going to look really clean. And it's going to look really, I don't know, diet effectively. effectively. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is like, we need a lot more calories. We need a lot more food. We need fat, carbs, protein. We need all the things. We need a lot of food, most of us, much more than diet culture tells us um, to, to eat. And if we, you know, in some instances, we're going to need like bigger, you know, bigger amounts of food, larger amounts of food, like it's really going to go up and down. And so, Um, I think making peace with the fact that when you are really listening to your body in a weight neutral way and really being honest, it might look different than you think. Um, Yeah. So I would say, yeah, like number one. Yeah. So that's kind of a combination. It's like looking, it's like kind of listening to your body and like deciding what feels good for you personally personally. But that work can only be effectively done in a weight neutral context, because Mm -hmm. if it's not done in a weight neutral context, you're going to constantly be like second guessing and judging and feeling like you're doing something wrong, when in fact, you might be doing something very, very right. I mean, there are, you know, eating disorder people out there, you know, eating disorder therapists out there who are like, you know, in some instances, if you have a starving person on your hands, like they need to eat like refined carbs and refined sugar and all these things that get totally villainized because they just desperately need calories. And that is the health that is, that is the best thing that they can do for their health is get the fastest calories possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we need to just let go of this like very rigid idea of health and just start, you know, thinking about like, okay, what would feel good to me right now? Also, you know, starting to prioritize health, you know, mental health, as part of yes. the health equation is super mm-hmm. important. Right. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm sure you know, I have days when I do things that don't make me feel as great. Right. I have days when I eat stuff that doesn't make me feel super awesome. That isn't like super, like food is just fuel. Right. It's just, you know, either pleasure, which is awesome. I mean, I think pleasure in and of itself, I think like, it, you know, <laughs> eating something just for pleasure is totally like a physically healing thing. Cause mm-hmm. it's like stress relieving and wonderful. and like makes me connected to the, the simple pl- pleasures of life. Um, But even sometimes when I'm just like running around and just like not eating super well because I'm busy at work or whatever, you know, like that's going to happen. And that's, you know, I have to be able to give myself breaks on things like that. Right. Like I have to be my my mental health is really founded on non judgment of my food and body. Right. Like constantly beating myself up for what I eat or what I look like is drove me full on crazy, right? Like it really drove me to some very dangerous places and dark places in my life. And I recognize that my mental health is founded on my ability to eat, you know, in any way and feel emotionally okay about it. Right. Like even if I eat something that doesn't make me feel awesome, like my ability to be like, Oh, well, you know what? I just have a bellyache. No big deal. That's mental health, right? That is mm-hmm. mental health, is to be able to even eat something that doesn't make you feel great and you're like, oh, well, I can just, you know, let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like intuitive eating, got to be weight neutral, body image work, mental health. I mean, the mental health thing also really, you know, crosses over into, you know, it's not just weight bias in our country, although I do think that that's sort of the biggest issue is is weight bias and weight prejudice because of the commingling of weight and health, we've also found ourselves in the situation where we really moralize health, and we really make health into this thing that like, you're a bad, like, you're like a lazy, horrible person, if you don't do health, if you don't do health correctly, Mm -hmm. not even necessarily weight, although obviously, those things get confused all the time. But even just health itself gets really heavily moralized in our culture. And it's like, I feel like I spend a good portion of my time with clients, just getting them to just chill out about <laughs> sometimes doing unhealthy things. Right. You know, like it's okay, girl, you like, <laughs> you know, ate a thing that gave you a stomach ache, you know, uh-huh. like it's okay. It's gonna be- um, It'll go away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like you've got to be able to roll with the punches or you've got to be able to like, chill, like just, you know, you have, there has to be room for you, your humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and so that's, I mean, again, there's a lot of issues, even in just this question, you guys are asking really great questions that I could go in a million directions with. But, (laughs) you know, right off the bat, these are some of the things that I think about, you know, and I think about like, okay, how do I actually let go of judgment? You know, it's things like, you know, let, you know, working on my weight, weight discrimination, weight bias, doing things like really prioritizing my wants and needs over the culture's demands of me. Um, It's doing things like prioritizing my mental health, practicing radical acceptance, practicing, you know, being able to let things go. Um, You know, those kinds of, uh, these are just some of the things that, you know, I talk about, you know, with my clients, when we're talking about like letting go of this sort of like deep shame and judgment of, of our food choices and of our bodies.
1: And that is like, gives us to our, you know, our last question we've already started talking about, but how do you live out the fit philosophy? How do you try to balance performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self when you're so busy? <laughs>
2: You know, it's interesting. I really, I'm going to kind of repeat myself, but like I really do that intuitively. Mm. So for me, balance in all areas of my life, for the most part is an intuitive process. I have a couple little things in my life where I have like, I try to stick to some semblance of a boundary, like sleep, for instance, like, Mm. I know if I don't get enough sleep, (laughs) like I'm gonna feel bad. So I'm like pretty not strict with myself, but I'm just like I need my sleep, you know. Like, <laughs> I think so there are certain things in life where I think like having kind of, you know, those kinds of boundaries are, are can be really useful for um, self care. Even things like brushing my teeth and washing my face, like, <laughs> like I I don't intuitively brush my teeth and wash my face. I try to just do it no matter what, and sometimes I don't do it, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, most areas of my life when it comes to self care, I am very intuitive, meaning like. I do what feels right and what feels good to me on a rolling basis. I don't have a lot of hard and fast rules in my life about self-care. It's mainly just like regularly practicing tuning into myself and being like, okay, girl, what do you need? Again, there are always the exceptions. Like I try to brush my teeth every night, no matter what, whether I feel like it or not. But, and again, sometimes I don't and that's okay. (laughs) But, you know, like for the most part, I think, you know, when it comes to, certainly when it comes to food. I would say for the most part, when it comes to exercise ish, I'm pretty intuitive. I mean, again, you know, sometimes you got to like book that into your schedule, but pretty intuitive. Um, And, you know, stress management, certainly, like, for me, that is my biggest health issue right now, like today, like I would say, since I stopped dieting, Um, My biggest health issue that I'm dealing with on a regular basis is stress management. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the hardest one for me is stress management. And so I, and I'm really, I recognize that that's gotta be an intuitive practice stress management for the most part. Although again, yeah, again, there are kind of like weird things that I, you know, try to add in every day even if I don't feel like it like I try to meditate every day even if I don't feel like it but again I fail sometimes and that's okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so but like in terms of stress like you know in terms of work like I work intuitively like some days I can like get a lot done and other times like I'm just beat and I just need to relax and and that might be unique to me as a person who works for themselves and by and large runs their own schedule um but yeah like I guess my point is is um you know, I really do self care, in general, in an intuitive way based on like, how I feel with a few exceptions. And and I'll say actually about the exceptions, because people always have questions to me about my exceptions to this intuitive living thing. Um, the exceptions are almost always things that I want to add in, rather than things that I want to take out. So, you know, there's a difference between adding in vegetables and taking out sugar right? Like adding in vegetables or adding in, you know, whatever, something that's going to help me balance my blood sugar, or this is actually a really good example. Like, I work with clients who have blood sugar issues and who have been, have tons and tons of restriction and diet related trauma and are just not like, it's not mentally or, or, you know, or even possibly physically healthy for them to just eradicate sugar from their lives just because they're having blood sugar management issues because of this, you know, for whatever reason, they just, it's not, it's not realistic. They end up binging on the stuff after they feel, because they feel so restricted and they're dealing with all this diet related trauma and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so, you know, a very basic thing that I would say to some, who's struggling with blood sugar issues is like, okay, instead of focusing on taking out, you know, every ounce of sugar, why don't you focus on adding in, you know, protein or fat or fiber or, you know, something that's going to help you absorb that blood sugar into into your, that sugar into your blood more slowly. Right. And so I'm, for the most part, the things where I, where I'm like, okay, I try to brush my teeth every night. I try to meditate every day. Sometimes I don't do it and that's okay. But, With those things, the things that I kind of make exceptions to my intuitive living situation, they're almost always like things that I want to add in rather than things that I want to take out. Taking out is very hard for human beings, right? Abstinence is very, from what we want to do is very, very hard for animals. It's not in our nature. It's not in our, it's not in our like natural, it's not in our constitution to resist stuff, right? Resist stuff that we want to, but it is not always easy, not always perfect like I said I don't brush my teeth every single night no matter what and I don't always meditate every single day no matter what but it's easier to add in healthy stuff than I think it is to take out unhealthy things in a mm-hmm. lot of instances mm-hmm. so um, you know again I intuitively will like back off some things like oh I don't feel good I don't think I should do that today you know that's that's intuitive right I can I, I moderate in quotes through intuition, but I, um, when I have those few things where I really try to do them on a regular basis, whether I kind of, quote, feel like it or not, it's almost always stuff that I'm adding in rather than stuff that I'm taking out, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Definitely. Oh, Isabel, that's a, that's why I love your blog so much. I just love your wisdom and how you keep it real. And thanks for, for coming on today.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. This is really fun. I liked this conversation oh, a lot. me too. All right. Well, bye, queens. Today's episode
0: is brought to you by yours truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing soon of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com to find out when the release date is
1: set and when it'll be on Amazon. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.